Hello, and welcome to An Aromatic Life. Okay, so this week's conversation is a sort of continuation from the previous episode where I spoke with Shele Huang about scents in modern China. And I guess what I mean by that is we're going to continue to explore historical moments in time through the nose. In today's conversation, we're going to go back to the period 1914 to 1918 during the Great War, so World War I specifically in Great Britain. So you might be someone who loves history as much as I do, but it's important to ask what relevance does the past have for how we live now in the present? What can we draw from the past? In this case, evaluating through the nose, through smell. Well, my guest today is going to offer yet another perspective on constructions of gender, race, and national identity, in this case, looking at Great Britain during World War I. She explains how the construction of quote-unquote British smells became a mode of mobilization for those at home, all while instigating restrictive and exclusionary models of national identity. So as you listen to this episode today, I'd like you to think about something. Think about the country you live in today and ask yourself if you can come up with a bunch of smells that really represent your country. Make a list even, write it down. What smells symbolize your country? And then once you've done that, ask yourself if these smells have specific connotations in terms of gender. Are they more masculine or feminine? Or are they in fact neutral for everybody? And then also reflect on race. Can all groups of people living in your country relate to these smells? Or are these smells more specific to particular groups? And lastly, think about class. Who would have fond associations with the smells you've listed? Everybody? Or really, only those who are well off? Or not? It's a lot to think about, but I think it's an interesting exercise to go through to recognize, to really notice what role smells play in a given country? And are these smells being pushed into the culture by specific people, for specific people, and thereby alienating others, maybe even discriminating against certain groups? Before we get started, let me introduce you to my guest. Jessica Clark is an associate professor of history at Brock University in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of The Business of Beauty, Gender and the Body in Modern London. She's co-editor of Canadian Critical Luxury Studies, Decentering Luxury, and editor of A Cultural History of Beauty in the Age of Empire, which is forthcoming. Her current book project, Sense of Change, Experiencing Modernity in Britain, 1880 to 1930, explores histories of nationalism, identity, and belonging in Britain with a focus on smell. This is a fascinating conversation that I know will make you think in new ways. Enjoy. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. 
So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. So I want to welcome you to an aromatic life, Jess. I'm so excited to talk to you about history. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Frauke. Oh, of course, of course. I invited you here today because I heard this wonderful talk that you gave recently, and you were exploring the role of smell in war, and specifically in the Great War, World War I, and Britain. And I thought it was so fascinating. So I reached out to you and I was like, this could be a really interesting topic for our, our listeners to hear. So thank you for coming on to talk about that. I think besides the fact that you had me at smell when you started talking about history, I was really intrigued to learn about history in terms of gender, race, class, nationalism. And I'm excited to talk about that here today. We're going to focus on an article that you wrote. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the article, but it's called Lavender for Lads, Smell and Nationalism in the Great War. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. But I'm just curious because I said I love history, right? I wonder if you could just tell me from your perspective as a history professor, for those listening who might not be all that interested in the past. There might be some people out there who aren't history buffs like you and me. <laughs> how can understanding history really help us with the present? So how can we make it relevant for today before we get into all things history? I think that there's all sorts of different ways, and especially with an attention to smell, that can inform the way we approach actual smells and ideas about smells today. So as we'll talk about in a minute, my work is really interested in the ways that smell was used to symbolize certain ideas about national belonging and also exclusion, acts of exclusion, ideas about exclusion, often based on ideas about race and gender. And so um, for me, exploring the ways that people defined and mobilized smells in the past to include and exclude people is really relevant today because I think that there's still ways in which people make arguments about quote unquote different groups of people, different smells. And I think smells can actually be mobilized in really kind of dangerous ways to discriminate against groups. And that's still with us today. So I think understanding the history of how those ideas develop can really help us navigate and be able to interrogate those same practices when they happen in 2024. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> so we'll keep that in mind as we talk about the past. You can always reference how it might that apply to the present. But before we get into the past, I always like to ask my guests a really, I call it a simple question. It's not simple for everyone, but I like to ask the question, what does the sense of smell mean to you personally? For me, I think perhaps because I'm a historian and I'm often thinking about time, for me, it's a really important connection and gateway to memory. Memory and ideas or feelings about change over time. And I know that this definitely isn't exclusively the case, but for me, it's a really grounded and embodied sense. And it makes me connect with myself and the natural world and memories, which can be helpful after days in the library where my head's in the books and in sure. the texts. When I think of the sense of smell, that's what really kind of grounds me in a lot of ways. 
So let me ask you then, did you grow up thinking much about your sense of smell? I know now because you're working with it, but were you somebody who, when you were young, were you like, were you connected with it? Were people around you? She's shaking her head. No, probably like me. No, no, I grew up not actively thinking about it and really taking it for granted in a lot of ways. Um, and actually back in 2017, my sense of smell diminished considerably. I had a, oh. a, an infection, yeah, a respiratory infection. And after that, I lost part of my sense of smell. Wow. So it really wasn't wow. until then that I really understood what an important facet of my life it was. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Because that happened to a lot of people during COVID, right? They're suddenly like, oh my gosh, this sense is not working. And so much of my smell is because I don't have it. It's affecting my everyday life, including eating and all that, right? But you got it back? No, no, sadly, no. Yes. So you're still, you're an osmic. Okay. Yeah. You know, yes. There's a lot of people who listen who are anosmic and you're not alone. Please know that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> There's you. so many yes. people out there. So that's going to be even more interesting to hear why you're so connected to the sense now. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But let me ask you that. Well, let's talk about it now. How did you become interested in evaluating history from the perspective of smell? Because you started with history in general, right? I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. I wrote um, a, a book about the history of beauty um, businesses and beauty providers in London in the 19th century. And um, I'm a gender historian by trade. So I was thinking about relationships between men and women traders and um, men and women customers and um, the ways that it allowed people to consume beauty goods or not. And so I was doing a lot of work with perfumers including people like Eugene Rimmel and other famous historical perfumers. So that subsequently led into new questions about thinking about smell more broadly. I went from the business side to the experiential side. Ah, and then also beyond experiential, what does it mean for society, right? And like topics which we'll talk about here today, nationalism either. It's so fascinating, honestly. So let's dive in, shall we? I thought we could begin by having you give some context to the period that we're going to be talking about, 1914 to 1918. And we're looking specifically at the British during World War I. So there are a lot of different actors involved. And I'd love for you to just describe who they are before we get into what scent and smell reveal in terms of class, gender, race, and nationalism. I thought we could start with those who are in the theater of war, right? The soldiers, the British forces. And specifically, could you tell me who made up the British forces? Yeah. So during the Great War, roughly six million men served, British men, I should say, and really representing all classes of British society. Quite famously, the officer class was dominated by white upper and middle class men. And of course, there's been lots of great histories and TV shows and movies about the lost generation, this generation of kind of officer classes, university men who died in the course of the war. But of course, there were millions of working class men as well. And the infantry and other other, um, groups were dominated by, but not exclusively working class, so working and middle class. Um, In terms of race, British servicemen would have been predominantly white, although there were also many Black British service people. Because of the 
historical inequities that have shaped record keeping and also yeah. because of elements related to the census and other documentation styles, their experiences, historians have done a lot of work to trace those experiences of Black British servicemen. But historians like Ray Costella have pointed out their really their centrality to the war effort in lots of ways. In addition to soldiers that were based in the British Isles, there also were millions of men who served in British colonial forces. Yes, which is huge. That's a big part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So in the British colonies, India contributed the largest number of men. So it would have been around 1.5 million men. Um, Yeah. And serving in all different fronts, including the Western Front, men from the Caribbean would have made up another 15,000 people. And then in our white settler dominions, so South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada and Newfoundland, where I'm from, would have contributed almost one and a half million men. Okay. So the numbers were pretty astounding. And it would have, well, it, it did, as historians have shown, what it meant for a very diverse front in a lot of ways, because British soldiers from the British Isles were socializing and stationed and working and fighting alongside soldiers from across British colonies as well. Okay, good. And we'll talk about what that meant in a little bit, but that's fascinating. And then we've got the perspective of the home front, right, in Britain and the UK. And there were a lot of volunteers who helped during this war period. So who were the volunteers that supported those at war from home? So the volunteers at home, again, would have represented cross-class segment of society. And because of the nature of war in this period and who was going to oversee theaters, it would have been primarily made up of women and children and elderly people. And so famously, the entire home front, through their support behind the war efforts in across the British Isles, and it really was a mobilization of huge segments of the population. What some historians have pointed out is that we do still see hierarchies in terms of how involved people could be, and it, hierarchies based on things like class and race, in the sense that elite and middle, upper middle class white women would have had the connections, the resources, and the time to yeah. really you know, devote to this really important cause. Um, but what it meant was that certain um, causes and certain subsets of soldiers, et cetera, would have been prioritized over others because of those differences. Exactly. And you do bring that up in the article, which makes perfect sense. I don't think a lot of people even say it a lot of times. They just talk in general terms. But the fact that it was these middle upper class women who had the time and the resources to do so, they would focus on, quote, their white men abroad, as opposed to the broader troops that we just finished talking about. So really interesting. And then there was another group, which gets talked about in your article. And those were the perfumers and the perfume industry, which is near and dear to my heart. So I think that's really interesting. But how were they perceived during the beginning of the war? So in 1914. At the beginning of the war, perfumers very quickly realized that their industry was in trouble. On the one hand, if you read their trade journals from the time, they were, of course, throwing themselves behind the war effort and very much in support of it. But they also understood that the purchase of anything 
kind of deemed a luxury, quote unquote, in that period, just was, they knew it was going to drop off. They knew that it was not the priority. It was not on people's minds. And so we have these really successful perfumery industries in this leading up to the war. Companies like Gosnell and Grossmith and Luces and Yardley, basically having conversations among themselves about how they can make it through the war in a lot of ways. And also, as we'll talk about later, how they could sustain uh, the material elements of their industry, like basically how they could get enough raw materials, especially from continental Europe during the war. So they were faced with a lot of obstacles and there was quite a bit of deep concern across the industry. All right, so let's now get into how these various actors interacted with each other in the context of scent and smell, which is my favorite topic. (laughs) And we're going to start with the home front, just because I I thought that would be a a great place to start. I think in your article, you also start with that. And so we're at home in Britain, and people wanted to support the troops at war. And there was something which I think is a great name called smellies (laughs) that were created. So can you explain what smellies are and what role did the volunteers believe these smellies served for troops? Yeah, so there were all sorts of different, really fascinating movements across the home front for all sorts of collection drives, for things like knitted goods, their gifts and baked goods. There were also campaigns for sphagnum moss, which is really interesting because it was used in dressings. And so one of the elements of these campaigns were people who wanted to send smellies. And so smellies were a variety of different scented goods that could be homemade or commercially purchased. And the idea of them is that they were supposed to send a little piece of home to these soldiers stationed at the front through smells and specifically through what they called traditional English smells. So smellies took the form of things like lavender bags, lavender bundles, and verbena bags, um, which many of us might be familiar with or even have in our sock drawer. And on the commercial front, people could send gifts like eau de cologne or things like commercially produced lavender water, again, as a kind of toilet item for soldiers at the front. Okay. And what's notable about these is that the smellies really only represented a handful of smells. It was only a handful of, yeah, it was quite limited, but there were really specific symbolic ideas about what these smells represented. Yeah. Let's talk about these quote, British scents, because I find it fascinating that they were perceived as British scents. And let's start with lavender, which is the primary focus of your article. But do you think lavender is a British scent? So there's going to be people out there who probably... I know, this is controversial. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't automatically think of lavender in the context of ideas about Britishness. And I can also see as a historian of these moments, the ways that perfumers from the 19th century really created marketing campaigns to really try to advance this notion that it is a distinctly British smell in order to boost their sales. So so my answer is no, and I could see the kind of the work behind the scenes of them trying to transform it into a British smell. But there is a traditional lavender industry 
in Britain. And there um, is. Yep. yes, so in Hitchin and Mitcham, and it's still to this day is having a resurgence. So that's not to say that there wasn't lavender being grown quite successfully in England. And also specifically, it was a specific type. It was English lavender. Right. But an important note, though, is that English lavender was actually grown in relatively small quantities compared to what perfumers actually needed to produce these items. Uh, and so through much of the 19th and the 20th century, British perfumers depended on lavender from places like the south of France to create okay. their goods. So they weren't up forthcoming about that. They were on the same side, right? The British and the French during World War One. So they could still, you said it was pretty hard to access raw materials, but they probably still were able to sort of get some raw materials from France, right? Yeah, the trade records suggest that they, like you say, were able to sustain it, but it was really difficult, particularly because things were not moving across the channel for yes. many different periods in the war. And so their entire industry was really under threat. Okay. So if we think about lavender, what does it mean in terms of class and race? What does that mean? Because it's more upper and middle class, isn't it? And, and is it very white, would you say? Yeah, so I think all of these symbolic associations between lavender and Britishness also had a lot of unspoken connections or unacknowledged connections in terms of how Britishness was imagined by certain groups of people. So one of the things I argue is that one of the kind of unspoken or unacknowledged qualities of lavender when these people are talking about lavender is that it's supposed to represent a type of white, rural traditional quote-unquote life in England yeah and it's supposed to invoke these connections to you know a mythologized past a past that's not actually doesn't actually reflect the not real you know, class or location no not at all not at all and especially by this period when most people are living in urban settings people do not have access to English lavender down country lanes and in terms of racial diversity, Britain is a diverse nation at this point. So it's really about symbolizing like a, myth a mythologized past that doesn't exist and never existed, um, but it has these symbolic connections for people. So did that happen when the war started or was that already the case before 1914, before the war started? They, there were already campaigns through the late 19th century linking lavender and other smells to quote-unquote Britishness. And that was really about um, the colonial context. So that was really about ah. you know, a type of white Englishness as colonial quote-unquote rulers over global colonies. So it was already happening. I would say that these associations intensified during the war okay. because it was a period of a lot of flux. Sure, so sure. These messages became really powerful. Yeah, makes total sense. And then what I also learned in your article is that lavender, as it moved, they were positioning it away from a luxury to more of a utility and making it more about health and hygiene and aromatherapy, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that. historically, lavender did have very important medicinal and domestic properties that you know, in through the dating all the way back, but certainly through the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, people used it as a home remedy. People used it as a tincture. 
you're used it to scent your home, et cetera. So in the war, lavender and other goods had become these really luxurious commercial items. And so during the war, commercial companies really revived arguments about how, no, in fact, it's actually really helpful for the sick room and it can act as a disinfectant and it has all of these other medicinal health-related properties, again, so as to really protect the industry in a lot of ways. Do you know, it's funny when I read that in your article, and this might become controversial, but I'm just going to say it, <laughs> is it made me think of during COVID, like I was watching the perfume industry also start to talk more about the aromatherapeutic and emotional and health, that kind of benefits of perfume. And it just, yeah. that that's kind of a, a thing from today. So interesting connection for me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that those... Those connections are very real and there are health properties and uh, mental sure. health properties, but it's sure. just interesting to see what companies prioritize at different yes. moments. It's yeah. really about what they're marketing, right? Yeah. It's like it's, all those things are true. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are true, but it's just where the focus is. So that's something I guess I was relating to the present, right? This is this idea of same thing was happening during COVID. And then also I wanted to just touch on the question, was lavender gendered? during this time? So the perfumery industry through most of the 19th century and leading into the early 20th century was very much unisex. Uh-huh. These items could and were purchased by all genders. And so men and women both would have bought things like lavender, water, and eau de cologne on the same levels. Okay. And that stayed throughout the war, right? I mean, lavender was one of those scents that was still for everybody. So they were trying to say, yeah, okay, good. Yes. And we'll talk about what happened after the war at the end, but because <laughs> things changed at that point, I think, right? All right. So that's lavender. How about violet? That's another British scent that you mentioned. So tell me about violet a little bit. In a similar way that we see lavender being connected to a kind of tra- quote unquote traditional English rural past. Violets have similar geographic and rural connections, specifically Devon violets are always talked about in terms of scented goods. So the idea is that these raw materials come from very specific English locations and again, idealized rural English locations. And so the violets were similar. Once again, British perfumers depended on places like France for their raw materials, including or things like violet, but there's still circulating ideas about how there there are also English violets that are very desirable and can be transformed into these perfumed goods. Okay, interesting. And then, of course, one of my favorites is the eau de cologne. I thought that was really interesting too, because that was marketed as a very British scent as well. And funny enough, eau de cologne originates from Italy, correct? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. So eau de cologne has a long and storied path. Again, slightly, you know, it's hard to discern what's truth and reality in terms of the history of eau de cologne, but we do know that it derives from the early modern period from a particular uh, perfumer named Farina. And it was the Farina family and the Farina firm who really disseminated eau de cologne across Europe through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. So one of the interesting things that happens is, once again, dating back to the 19th century, but especially around the war, British perfumers insist that 
Eau de Cologne is and can be, in fact, a British production. And just because it has this long storied continental past doesn't mean that it's not also a very important British good. So there's all sorts of advertising campaigns about British made Eau de Cologne. Um, and which again isn't entirely true because a lot of the natural resources are not coming from Britain. Right. Um, but it, and again, this becomes especially important during the war because they're trying to encourage the consumption of British eau de cologne rather than that from the enemy. Quote unquote, yes. That, of course, being Germany in that period. Germany in 4711, that was huge. Exactly, exactly. And so, once again, in the trade journals, perfumers are really wringing their hands about the fact that it seems customers don't really, they don't either, either they don't know where their eau de cologne comes from or they don't care. Right. And they care more about the actual scent and the quality of it. So there's a huge push amongst British perfumers to basically say, buy Britain. Okay. And would you say this eau de cologne, when it went to the soldiers of war, it wasn't even for the soldiers as much as it was for the officers, like the upper class? Was it kind of like the upper class serving the upper class? Is that correct or no? Yeah, I think that that's a good characterization. I think lavender bags and other smellies that were based kind of in natural lavender, like okay. lavender flowers and the plant, they could be a little more cross-class in okay. terms of their distribution. But I think I would argue that the people who are receiving the commercial scents are really upper class and upper middle class. Let's talk about fiction versus reality. You touched on it a little bit, <laughs> this perceived thing. What scent conveys in actuality versus what is projected? So how did these British scents that we just talked about, how did they create a nostalgic fictional reality for only some soldiers and in fact do nothing for the majority of troops? Because we talked about how so many of the troops came from the colonies, right? So what was going on there? When both volunteers and perfumers started these campaigns to transport smellies, it was really, again, very much about invoking this mythologized idea about English life that, as I said, was white and rural, and it could be working class. But again, it was kind of like this idealized version of agricultural work, et cetera. And as you mentioned, that just really didn't reflect the realities of British demographics, let alone the people who are at the front. So most working class soldiers would have lived in urban settings, yeah. perhaps even urban poverty. So they would yep. have lived primarily in cities for their whole life. And then, of course, there's millions of soldiers coming from colonial locations who are on the front, on the Western Front and beyond. And so the efforts by people on the home front really only reflected a very small segment of the population and a really limited idea of what it was to have, like, quote unquote, British sense at all. Yeah. So, so in that way, I'm sure that they provided comfort to certain soldiers. But again, they're very limited in terms of effects. And they're also really limited in how they defined Britishness, quote unquote, who they saw as British. Yeah. These, these kind of symbolic ideas. Right. So for me, there are two things going on. One is the scent, as we know, is very personal, right? It's based on your 
life's journey and what you've smelled along the way. So if you're from India and you're fighting for the Brits and you get this lavender bag, it's nice, but I don't really have an association with lavender as such. Maybe that could be the case. Mm. Maybe some enjoyed it anyway to get it. The other part is that I read in your article that a lot of them didn't even receive the smellies, right? That was another thing that was unfair, that a lot of these smellies were shipped to very specific groups and the support was very localized and very, I don't know, would you say race related or not so much? Yeah, I think that there was the ways that smellies and really all kind of gifts and, you know, soldier comforts, as they were called, really any gifts and from the home front, they often went to very specific groups, as you said. And I know that we have uh, historical documentation that Ray Costello found of some colonial troops writing to the British government and saying, we aren't, we're being deliberately left out of all of these comforts which included smellies and also things like chocolate and knit goods and reading materials and all sorts of things that are supposed to show home front support. So yeah, I think, like you said, the only reports that we have about smellies going to troops, they're going to white British-based troops. Okay. So it's definitely rooted in ideas about race and ideas about who the home front's thinking about when they think about, quote unquote, supporting their troops. Right, right. And I find it fascinating that through scent, the types of scents you provide and how smell is so personal, again, that that really shines this idea of selectivity and exclusion and all that, that you normally wouldn't read about in history as such. People just say, oh, they sent smellies and this and that. But what does that actually mean? (laughs) And how does that translate? So that's what I loved about your article, that that really shines a light just by looking at it from the lens of smell, that there was exclusion and there was just thinking about your own perspective as opposed to a broader perspective. All that came to a fore. Yes. Absolutely. These preconceived notions about what these smells symbolized and who should be, who are, were the quote unquote deserving recipients of these smells. was incredibly limited and really shows the racial and class divisions in this moment. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Let's move to the theater of war, right? Those, the soldiers. So the reality of war as a soldier, was completely different than in the home front, right? Mm -hmm. It might seem pretty obvious, but I thought we could just touch briefly on this idea of unfamiliar smells. You're out in war suddenly, and you're experiencing completely different smells. So what are some of the smells of war, so to speak? Smells on the front really come to the fore in a lot of descriptions, wartime accounts, basically. And smells could come from a range of places. In my piece, I talk about sick horses, latrines, garbage heaps, of course, bodies, dead bodies, one's own body in certain ways. And there were also issues like the trenches, for example, the trenches were often lined with different types of metal. But what would happen is you would just layer over previous inhabitants kind of detritus, like whatever people left behind, you would layer the the metals over top of it. Uh-huh. And so it was just kind of like this stacking of different materials. And so they smelled, they were rotting in lots of ways. Sure. So, and 
will tell it, who's a historian or smellist, also talked about cordite. So the smells that the chemical smells that came off of shrapnel and different weaponry. Ah, uh, yes, of course. What was striking about the descriptions of these smells, though, is like we can go through and understand all the different smells that would have been on the front. But in a lot of the soldiers' accounts, they describe it as unfamiliar and almost un- impossible to categorize. Okay. So would that make the smellies that they received that much more pleasurable? That was certainly the goal of the people who sent smellies overseas. <laughs> okay. That was the hope. That was the hope, right? Okay. Just to get back to another aspect that I found fascinating is smell can be used to assert power. And through power, you start to create others, right? That's a common theme, this otherness. And it's interesting to read about, quote, Eastern smells. And whether it was just other troops making food that was different, maybe, like onions, garlic, things like that. So can you talk about that a little bit, these Mm -hmm. Eastern foreign other smells? Yeah, there were a couple of accounts from uh, British authors in trench magazines, which were magazines produced by, by different groups on the front. And they didn't only talk about unfamiliar scents in relation to um, things that they would experience on the front. They also talked about, quote unquote, foreign smells that they came upon in different theaters of war. So specifically, there's one account from an English author who was in Egypt in 1918. He was on his way to Gallipoli. And he talks about how he was, quote unquote, assailed by smells of the East. And that for him included, as you said, people were cooking garlic and onion. And then, but then he went on to also include the smells of corpses that had been buried nearby. So it was a moment where he talked about the different types of smells he was experiencing and how much he missed the quote unquote, the smells of home. Um, But it really took on racist connotations because it was really about a collapsing of dead bodies and certain cooking smells that would have been unfamiliar with him. Okay. And so that's really common historically in lots of different settings. And as a historian of Britain, you see lots of travel logs by British travelers who they will talk about the different smells that they're smelling, but they will also use them to express disgust or foreignness or make groups of people seem to be other. Okay. Yeah. 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 That time period that comes up a lot. I think it's just the nature of that time, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that this idea of masculinity in war and how scent played a role in that, like this idea that you were, what's the term? I I like to call it macho, which is more of a (laughs) Latin term, I suppose. But there's, I think you had a different term for the masculinity. But I, I thought that was interesting too, this idea of masculinity and then what role these smellies played. Like some people probably thought, oh, they shouldn't receive these smellies. That's, it's not macho. It's not going to help them be strong in war. You're nodding your head. Tell me all about that. Yes, there are lots of debates and discussions around these soldier comforts that were being sent over and about, again, what they meant that they were being sent to these servicemen who were on the front line, who were supposed to be, as you say, the ultimate forms of masculinity in that moment. They were supposed to, and I think I use the term martial masculinity. They That's were defending it. the nation. They were on, literally on the front lines of defending Britishness. And so there were some concerns about 
these comforts being potentially effeminizing and taking away the masculinity of the British soldier in certain ways. I think what was interesting about some of the accounts at the front about receiving these smellies, though, is that some of the reception allowed a type of vulnerability. The men described receiving these goods, and they talked about the ways one Tommy reportedly said it reminded him of his mother. Okay. So, and But those could coexist. He could be a British Tommy on the front lines of war, and he could have his smelly that reminded him of his mother. Like that was allowed to have that mm-hmm. interpretation mm-hmm. of the smell. And supposed to saying, oh, this smells really good to me and it's, it's calming me down because for feminine, quote, reasons, it was, I used to, you, you pushed it off to your mother and said it smelled like my mother. That's interesting. How about this idea of the civilizing properties of smell? What does that mean? These smellies were sent to spaces like field hospitals, which were by all accounts could be really terrible places to end up for so many reasons, in part because of the smells, the sounds, the kind of frenetic energy, the just the terrible things people would witness and hear and smell. And so a lot of the supporters of smellies argued that smellies were something that could again, quote-unquote, civilize the space. It could help remind both soldiers and medical personnel of home and specifically of a rural white English home that was well-kept and that was calm and soothing and filled with these trappings of, quote-unquote, Englishness. I think their use of the word civilize is really telling because, of course, that type of language comes up often in this period, in discussions of both the working classes in Britain, but also colonized people, and the idea of Englishness as a way to, quote unquote, civilize people around the world. So I think that was a telling, like, it's a telling word that that's what they, some of the volunteers set out to do. They wanted to civilize this, quote unquote, uncivilized place. I think one of the questions that's still outstanding for me, um, which I tried to indicate in the piece but is a little more like a background, the research side of it, is that I have accounts of the reception of smellies among soldiers, but Uh these accounts are all written by supporters back home. Okay. Or they're like filtered through them or mediated through them somehow. And so I found that really striking because we know that these smellies were getting out to soldiers, but I don't have any direct unfiltered responses from them. So I have a sense of how smellies were received and not received and the effects they may or probably may not have had, but I don't have any direct evidence from the soldiers themselves, which I think is important. All right. So let's talk about when the war ended in 1918, because it's also interesting that the war ended, the soldiers came home and what role did the traditional British sense, so the lavenders, the eau de colognes, what, what role did they play in life after the war? After the war, they played an important role for many returning veterans who many veterans, when they returned home, found themselves facing significant hardship in terms of health and mental health effects from the war. 
as well as there were mass issues with unemployment and basically just trying to reintegrate into society in this period was just incredibly challenging. And there were a lot of hardships. So interestingly, the Imperial War Museum has in its collections three lavender sachets. So little packages that were being sold by unemployed veterans, probably on the streets, maybe door to door. And they were selling them for a pittance to just try to make money probably for their families, if not for themselves. And so it's this interesting moment where lavender transforms from being a gift that's bestowed onto those soldiers to something that at least some soldiers mobilized themselves when they got home to, I argue that to perhaps engender some, to prompt some feelings amongst the people who they're trying to sell this to. Again, tapping into this alleged Englishness of this smell and the fact that they had served Britain. I think that they're playing on these symbolic connections to, again, try to solicit help and support from the broader population. Okay. But it didn't, and I, maybe you couldn't find this out, but did these scents, these quote British scents, did they have a new connotation? You start having different scent associations when there's a different context in which you're smelling, quote, lavender yeah. or eau de cologne. You come back home, did it remind you of war? Was it? Well, that's what I find fascinating. Yeah, I could only speculate because I don't have direct accounts, yeah. but I think that has to be the case. I could only imagine that if you're on the front or you're in one of these field hospitals, accounts claimed that smellies could mask the smells of things like your body or infection or death. But I'm sure, like you said, it was probably much more of an intermingling. Yeah. And if I had to guess, I'd say I could only imagine that lavender and eau de cologne might, for some people, really bring up horrible memories, really yeah. traumatizing memories. Yeah. So interesting. That's what smell can do. Yeah. I also noticed that you, like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I noticed that you touch on this idea that lavender, for instance, started becoming much more feminine in the interwar period between World War One and Two, Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's this really interesting and important shift after the war. In terms of perfumery consumption more generally, oh. you see a really broad expansion of the perfumery industry through the 1920s and the 1930s. I think responding in large part to gendered shifts. And I'm sure like we're all familiar with the emergence of the flapper, for example, yes. in the 20s and 30s. But generally speaking, we see women seeking out a broader life outside of the home and changing fashions to reflect that. Right. And the same happened in perfumery. We see many more perfumes being developed and marketed explicitly to women as feminized scents. And so we see a real split in the industry between smells for men and smells for women. Whereas before the war, they were much more, as I mentioned, unisex or gender neutral. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. But I'm also curious, how would you say lavender and eau de cologne are perceived in modern day Britain? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that it still retains a lot of these symbolic connections. When I think about, for example, I always think of Yardley's lavender. Yes. Because those are the ones that are most readily available here in Canada. And for me, I am 
also a British citizen. I have British ancestry. And so I always associate these smells with my Nana and my Auntie Queenie, who were very English and very white and very much believed in this type of English mythologizing about what England was, which was rural and quiet and et cetera. So all that to say is lavender and eau de cologne are still incredibly popular and important smells. But I do think that people still imbue ideas about quote unquote tradition in them because they're often, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're still often designated as like heritage smells in certain Mm -hmm. perfume lines, right? Absolutely. And I think, and that's the tension we have to tie everything to modern day here is this idea of traditional and let's stick with what we knew from the past versus how um, diverse societies are getting now. And what is it, what is a British smell today versus what it, what it was back then? Because if you look at the the population in the UK, it's so diverse now versus what it was even back in 1914 and 18, right? Through that period that you talked about. And here in the US, what is an American smell? There's the world is changing. It's more of a melting pot. And I think that's going to be interesting for people trying to hold on to old things. Yeah. And I think that this idea of holding on to old things can be really um, dangerous in terms of what people are actually arguing for. And so in this case, in this historical case, we have these supporters of smellies saying, this is what England is, in large part as a reaction to what first of all, Britain really was, and also what was happening in the context of the war. And what that meant is in many cases, and even in many histories until very recently, what that meant was portraying the war and the front as a very white British space Mm -hmm. and imagining in a certain way. And like you say, excluding huge numbers of historical actors. And Yeah. yeah, so it's about questioning and pushing back against ideas of even defining a national smell. Exactly. And we're not, I'm not trying to argue that poo-pooing any white person, I'm a white person, you're a white person, who has like excellent memories of lavender from their past. That's not what I'm trying to argue for. I don't think you are either. I think it's just about saying that smell is very personal and to just keep that in mind when you're talking to any person. It's like, ah, oh, that's nice that that's a personal association you have. But that, again, does not mean it's a, quote, British or a, quote, American scent or Canadian, <laughs> whatever you might want to call it. Right. Yeah. And acknowledging the ways that smells can be personal mm-hmm. and smells can also be mobilized to symbolize other things um, mm-hmm. for better and for worse. And I think just being aware of what broader associations are being linked to smells and not really questioned. Yeah. It's our job to question what makes that a British smell and is it actually a British smell? And should we even be talking in the terms of British smell? Yes, yes. No, good point. So I'd love to know, is there a takeaway that you have from what you've learned from this period of time? What was the biggest learning for you? I think Once I started asking different questions about how smell was operating in this period, it's become clear to me the ways that ideas about smells were being mobilized in this time to once again define who and who did not allegedly belong to British 
national identity. And I think I was really struck by the ways that smell operated that way. Mm -hmm. I'd read a lot of great work by people who talked about smell as a way to include and exclude people. And it was when I opened my own mind to those types of questions that it became clear to me that my work stretches from the late 19th century to the end of the war. And you could see the ways that smell is also being used to make arguments about belonging and exclusion at times, again, in really damaging ways or really yeah. problematic ways. So yeah, I've just learned, again, once I kind of shifted my focus, I started seeing it operate in many different levels. Yeah. And, and that's what's so great about coming at history from the perspective of smell, for example. It's been most, mostly visual, I would say. So it's nice that you're taking this angle. And that's what I hope in this uh, podcast and today's conversation is to get people to think more from other perspectives. So thank you for sharing more about this time period. What are you working on next? Does it include smell again? What is Jess working on now? So this article is part of a larger book project. Ah. And so this will be the last chapter in the book. The book starts in the 1870s or so. And I look at different facets of life in Britain in this period. So I talk about things like shopping. I talk about things like work, and especially in working class communities and urban locations. I talk about the institutions and especially prisons in this period. And then we conclude with war. So again, it's thinking about how smell is operating in all of these moments to make different claims about being a member of British society in this moment. That's going to be fascinating. When is that coming out? I'm still writing. <laughs> <She's> so... <laughs> I made a face. I'm still writing. So I'd imagine it won't be for another couple of years. years. Probably until okay. it's actually out. Yes. Okay, but people can get a hold of this article. You said it just came out. So I'll put a link to it because I think people might be interested to read what we've talked about here today as well. A little insight into what's coming with your bigger book. So I wanted to just finish with the three questions that I always like to ask my guests to get to know them a little bit better. And I'll start by asking you, what's your favorite smell right now? Any smell in the whole wide world? I am currently in a very busy teaching term because I'm a history prof here in uh, Canada. And so my partner makes our bread for us. And so when I come into the home and I can catch whiffs of I was just thinking you can't even these bread. Questions, yeah, these questions are not going to be easy for you because <laughs> I did not know you were anosmic. So this is a new perspective I'm getting here. Yes, I apologize. I just interrupted you, but thank you. <laughs> No, no, that's okay. I can still smell certain things and okay. some things better than others. It's not complete loss. So yes, but yes, I can catch whiffs of the fresh baked bed, which to me symbolizes coming home to comfort and being cared for. And Aww. I just, I'm very appreciative when I come into the house and smell that. That's great. How about a favorite scent memory? When I was younger, I was very passionate about ballet. And I went to ballet school in Toronto here in Canada. And one of my favorite smells and one of the smells that made me feel like I was really working towards my dream was dance studios, ballet studios. Uh. This great mix. In, in my experience, they're often like older buildings and older rooms. So it's this great mix of the wood floors, 
rosin, which you use to keep your dance shoes kind of sticky so that you won't slip and sweat. (laughs) We drink a lot of sweat and old sweat and tiger balm. Oh yeah. Which, yeah. And so it's, it's this kind of mix of smells that it always made me feel like I was one step closer to, to where I wanted to be. (laughs) Oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. It reminds me of, I played basketball for many years. So whenever I go into a a gym and I could smell the basketball court, it's kind of like this. I can relate to that a little bit, but very nice. Thank you. And then what would you say are five smells that best describe you? I found this very challenging. (laughs) Many do, many do. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I appreciated it. It was a great exercise. I was thinking, and I also, I have to admit, I cheated a bit and I consulted a few friends and loved ones. Oh, people do that all the time. You're not, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what do you think? So the first one has to be old, dusty books, old, dusty libraries and archives in the sense that history is not only something I do, but it's something I really love and and just connects with my day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. I'm smelling dusty books most days of my life or I'm in there. (laughs) I love it. And then I had to say, I am really passionate about cooking and trying new recipes. So I picked garlic and onions because you start a good base when you're getting a a dish going. It's that initial garlic onion smell where there's promise about where you're going to end up. I love it. Good. And a a friend of mine suggested cold air, the smell of air on a cold day, which I found very, I was very flattered because they said that it was kind of fresh and bracing and <laughs> it's a feeling it's, it's very much a feeling yes cool I selected also the smell of dirt and especially like wet dirt which sadly I can't really smell anymore that yeah. smell after it's rained that's one of the smells that I've really lost but I like to think it represents just being grounded and hardworking and just kind of of the earth as much yes. as I try nice and then Another smell, which I don't know if it necessarily describes me, but it certainly captures one of my favorite moments and feelings, which is it's a bit of an ephemeral smell that I don't know if I'm going to be able to describe it, but it's the smell of someone or yourself when you come inside and you've been outside for a nice afternoon. Yeah. Do you know that's no, I, 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 yeah, that one's hard to describe, but I know what you mean. Yes. Yes. And you can just tell it smells like outside. You smell like outside. And it's not a specific scent. It's just having been out meeting in the sun or doing an activity or going for a nice walk. And you come in and there's just this smell of outside that you bring in with you. And again, so that doesn't describe me necessarily, but that's one of the moments I feel best just because I love being outside and I love being active. And so I like that, you know, that embodied feeling when you have that smell. I love that. That's a new one. And I get it. <laughs> it's great. Thank you for sharing I'm so that. glad because I, I wasn't sure. I was like, I don't know if this is a, something that other people notice too. Oh, I, I'm, I'm glad sure that. I'm glad people think, yeah, I can relate to that. There is a smell when you come from the outside in. Yes. I'm going to pay attention to that this year and see if I can describe it. And if I come up with a description, I'll send it to you. <laughs> Please do. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jess. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about history and from the perspective of smell, for sure. And I want to thank you for bringing your knowledge here today and enlightening us with 
new and interesting perspectives that I hope we can take away even for today and for the future. Thank you so much for inviting me, Frauke. Thanks for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be so helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, anaromaticlife.com, where I share lots of information, including my projects around the sense of smell. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.